Heavenly Father, sometimes we feel just like we've uh, sung those words out of the depths. And so often as your people, we can feel like that. And so this morning we ask that the Lord Jesus Christ would come and be our teacher, that he would show us more of himself, and that we, by uh, looking to your word now, would be strengthened, would be helped uh, to live for you. We ask all these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. And well, there has been uh, lots of talk, hasn't there, this week about um, uh, not just contenders, if you're thinking about um, a certain golf tournament, um, but lots of candidates, uh, lots of candidates, lots of people are um, vying for the attention um, of others to become the next um, prime minister. And the more that I, I thought about this chapter, Jonah chapter 2, and the more I think it is a, a really strong candidate to be one of the most um, important and fascinating um, prayers in the Old Testament. And what I want to try and do, what I want to uh, do to try and get us into the text and get the text into us is just give us um, four words this morning as we look at this passage, four words. You could think of um, these words as being like four points on a compass as we try to navigate uh, this passage. And what we're going to do, we're going to start in the east and we're going to work our way around the compass for reasons that hopefully will become um, obvious. And so as we look at this passage, the first word that I want to um, give you is the word enclosure, enclosure. And we normally think of um, animals when we hear that word. Um, kids uh, who are here this morning, I'm sure uh, you've been to the zoo or you've seen animals at a farm um, from behind the fence. But in our passage in um, Jonah chapter 2, Jonah is not looking at an animal, is he? He is in this great fish. Um, Jonah had wanted freedom. And Jonah had experienced freedom for a little while. But now, in chapter 2, he is held captive. Jonah has been imprisoned. He was chucked into the sea. He went down beneath the waves. And then suddenly he finds himself not in the belly of shale, but in the belly of the fish. Um, and though he's been rescued, all his hopes, all his plans, all his dreams at this point, they have actually come to an end. And he is isolated. He's trapped. He can't do anything. In the words of the psalmist, he's been hemmed in by God. Uh, the text mentions um, in verse 17 the word appointed. And we'll see that word three more times in chapter 4. But Jonah is, he is restricted here. Jonah is in the dark. And all of this is God's doing. God has got him in this fish. Now, what are we to make of this? Well, I think that God um, sometimes does things like this in the lives of his children. Maybe not in quite as uh, dramatic way as this. But God puts us 
in difficulty. God puts us in pressurized situations. God does that for a while. God allows that to happen. And to borrow Paul's language, he allows us to be, to be hard-pressed on every side. He takes us to the point where all our plans, all our hopes and our dreams have, have sort of just come to an end. And maybe this happens when we get sick. And maybe we just have to stop and we have to suddenly um, reflect on how our lives have been going. I think lots of us felt a bit like this during lockdown. We were forced to look in the mirror uh, for a while. Or maybe we have a kind of enclosure experience when we're, we're running from God like Jonah and God just uses something, something painful, something difficult to draw us back to himself. He restricts us for a season. He brings us into an experience or a place that is very difficult. And often what God does in times like that is change us. God renews us. These um, tombs, they become like wombs. And we come up out of these experiences, we come up out of them different people. And I'm sure that many of you uh, this morning will be able to say something like that has happened to you, maybe at some stage in your life. This is what God was starting to do with Jonah. In this fish, God was, he was beginning to change this man. The progress was slow, as we'll see, but something was happening to him. And maybe today, if we are, or someone that we love is going through something like this, if, even if it is a lot less dramatic, we need to know, they need to know that God only ever does something like this out of sheer love for his children. See, the psalmist, I mentioned him a moment ago, the psalmist says, you hem me in behind and before. But in that verse, the psalmist also says, you lay your hand upon me. And so this morning, if you're in a very difficult, painful place, if you are being challenged, restricted, and frustrated in some way, if you are going through something like the kind of um, enclosure experience that Jonah went through, then never forget that God has not let go of you. His hand is still on you. And I think that's a great comfort, isn't it? So this um, prayer, like many of our prayers, it happens in an enclosure. But we also see that it is full of, this is the second word, it is full of scripture. Enclosure, scripture. If we uh, look at this prayer and, and the body of it in, in chapter two, one of the most fascinating things about this passage, I think, is that there's basically absolutely nothing original in this prayer. In fact, it's almost, it's like a, a string of pearls, quotations from the Psalms. I could give you all the references uh, later on. Come and speak to me afterwards if you want some of them. 
So this prayer is, it's not just God's word. It is made up of God's word. And it's a collection of verses from other parts of the Old Testament. Isn't that um, quite interesting? What do you think of that? Um, Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Is this um, evidence that Jonah just had a, a kind of formal relationship with God? And that if Jonah had a more genuine faith, then he'd have prayed his own words. And maybe you can see how some, someone might think that. Well, I don't agree. Because here's a man who's in trouble. And here's a man who thought he was about to die. And he starts to pray. And what is it that bubbles up to the surface? God's word bubbles up to the surface. It has been hidden in his heart. And when he's in trouble, when he opens his mouth and prays, all of this, all of this scripture that he knew, all of these themes and ideas, they all come up and out of him. And one author says that, um, thinking about these, some of these kind of ideas, he says that when we are babies and we just uh, coo, don't we? We make um, little noises. But when we're older, we can communicate in a different way. And we can write poetry. And uh, we might use poetry to, to express our love for someone we love. And the author asks this, are infant sounds more honest than Shakespeare's sonnets? They're both honest, aren't they? But he says the sonnets, the, the, the poetry has got more experience of life in them, in it. These formal written words, they, they can often carry a weight of meaning that our own words lack. I think we see things like this, principles like this, at maybe at a funeral. Somebody has died and a poem is read or a hymn is sung. Someone else's words are used at an incredibly emotionally charged moment to express what is going on in us. And I want to say that that is not inauthentic. See, when you and I are in trouble, isn't it often the case that we we grasp on to specific words, specific ideas and phrases from God's Word, and they are like a life raft. Maybe it's the Psalms. Maybe it's the Lord's Prayer, the, the I Am sayings of Jesus. Maybe it's His words from the cross. We go back to these things. And maybe we are struggling so much this morning that all we feel like we can do is just repeat these things back to him. And friends, I want you to know that that is not a problem. That is a really good thing. And that that is real faith. God has given us words to speak to him when you and I are lost for words. Psalms, they're words from the heart of God the Father that we say back to Him. 
And so doesn't that tell you something about his compassion for you this morning? When you and I, when we can hardly get the words out, when we're close to tears, when we're struggling to pray, God says, it's okay. Let me give you some words to say. We sometimes do this with other people, don't we? We're with somebody, they're speaking to somebody else. The person standing next to us is really struggling to get out the words that they want to say, and we say, let me, let me say what you want, what I know you want to say. And God is like that with us. God has given us the Psalms. He's given us words like this to say, I understand your pain. I know about your struggles. Hold on to these words. Let these words speak for you. It's a really wonderful thing. So we've thought about the place this prayer was prayed. We've thought about the enclosure. We've thought about the makeup of the prayer. But I want us to focus for a little while now on the content. What does Jonah actually pray? And the answer, I think, is a little bit of a mixture. That's word number three, mixture. See, more than one thing is going on in this prayer. Jonah is praying, and he's also talking to God about his praying. Can you see that? He says, I called out to the Lord. This happened, presumably, as he started to sink down. But he's telling God this as he's praying in the fish. So there's praying and praying. There's also crying and answering. Jonah does the former, God does the latter. And as he prays, he speaks not just of his own fears, but of how God has rescued him. It's, it's part prayer, part testimony. And as Jonah prays, he's also, as someone has said, he's, there's, a, there's a conflict going on in him between sense and faith. Maybe you can see that in verse 4. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. I thought that was what was going to happen. And yet, I shall look again upon your holy temple. It's a mixture. Jonah knows, from his experience, he knows God. Jonah is someone who's known God's rescue, verse 2. He knows that his life is in God's hands, verse 3. He knows that God, not the sailors, had been the one who'd thrown him into the sea. Jonah knew the importance of seeking God's face. He mentions the temple in verse 4 and verse 7. He knew how necessary it was to be in the place where his sins could be pardoned. Jonah knew God as his God, verse 6. Jonah knew the truth about idolatry, verse 8. Jonah was determined to go and worship God. And yet Jonah is still wrestling with all of these things. He's somebody who found God's compassion, God's grace frustrating. And so he sums up his view of the way God works in the world in five words in verse, at the end of verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Someone has said that, in a sense, it's the heart of the whole Bible. And if you're not a Christian this morning, the wonderful news at the heart of the Christian faith is that God loves to save people who don't deserve it. God saves those who cannot save themselves. 
It's by grace that we've been saved. The Lord Jesus Christ is a rescuer. He is the one who can pull us up when we're drowning in our sin. And Jonah saw some of the beginnings of these things. Jonah knew that God was a covenant God, a God who made promises, a God who kept those promises. Jonah knew that God was rescuing a people for himself. And yet Jonah was struggling to really believe these things. These truths about God, they hadn't been worked out down into his heart, into his life. He didn't really see what this meant. Now, Jonah is often bashed over the head uh, for this, like um, a fisherman with a fish. But I think we need to look at ourselves this morning. Is Jonah, is he the only one whose theology doesn't quite mirror his life? Is Jonah the only person in this um, room who sometimes struggles to to extend the grace to others that he has been shown? Well, you know the answer, don't you? The danger for those of us who, who are maybe reformed, who love the doctrines of grace, who love verses like salvation belongs to the Lord. The danger is not that we take these things um, too seriously, but that we don't take these things seriously enough. We don't allow them to sink down inside us. We don't allow them to color our lives. But God wants us this morning, He wants these truths, He wants us to plunge into them. God wants us to swim in the ocean of his love for us. God wants truths like this, salvation belongs to the Lord, to to die us, to mark us, to change us. He wants us to be able this morning to realize, to rest, to rejoice in the wonderful truth that salvation really does come from him. He wants us to know, to feel that we have been washed, we have been sanctified, we have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He wants these things to go deep into us. And God is going to take Jonah on a journey in the rest of this book. He's going to work these things into him. He's going to leave him in no doubt by the end just how gracious he is. And speaking of that grace, and that takes us to our final word this morning. In this passage, we don't just see an enclosure. We don't just see lots of scripture. It's not just the case that it is a bit of a mixture. And we also see a picture, a picture And in a sense, I think this is the most important point. It's the north on our compass. That's where we started in the east and worked our way around. How does Jesus understand this passage? What does Jesus think this passage, Jonah chapter 2, is all about? Well, listen to Matthew chapter 12. He says this, As Jonah 
was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And what Jesus is saying is that Jonah's time in the fish, under the sea, it is a picture, it is a pointer to his death. And the fact that he puts a a time limit on it, and the fact that Jonah is delivered up from this watery grave means this passage is also a picture of the resurrection. And unless we make that connection, unless we see Christ here, unless we let him give his perspective on this text, we aren't thinking about it Christianly. This chapter is a picture of the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Lord Jesus Christ has gone down into the grave for you and me. He has tasted death. He has been completely closed off for you and me. Jesus has been cast into the deep. He's gone down right into the sea of God's judgment for us. And all the wrath of God has swept over him. On the cross, he's cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. And as he died, he heard silence for us. And yet, what does Peter say at Pentecost? God raised him up from the dead. God freed him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. But this chapter, it's not just a picture of what happens to Christ. It is a picture of what happens to us. And Alistair reminded us something of this on Sunday night. We have died with Christ. We have gone down with him into the grave. But we have also been raised with Christ. And you and I, we are so close to him, so bound to him that we we are participating in him. He is the head. We are the body. Where he is now, we will be. We are bound up with him. And what is true of us spiritually will one day be true of us physically. The pattern of Jonah's life, this death, this resurrection, the pattern of the life Jesus. Friends, this is the pattern of our lives as well. And as those in Christ, as we bear his name, as we bear his mark, as we suffer, as we go down with Jesus, the great promise of the gospel is that there will be a resurrection. We often say, don't we, what goes up must come down. And the wonderful truth about Jesus, the wonderful truth about his death and resurrection and our death and resurrection united to him is that what goes down must come up. If we died with him, we will also live with him. And God wants us to have confidence that what happened in picture form here to Jonah, one day that will happen to us. 
Calvin writes this, how was it that Jonah escaped safe and was delivered? Because it so pleased God, because the Lord commanded, by this power then, by which he works all things, we also shall one day be raised up from the dead. And friends, that is when it will matter the most, when we are on our deathbeds. When we are on our deathbeds, on that day, so much that we cling to, our idols, they will be irrelevant. But as we plunge into death, we will be able to know, we will be able to say, there is someone holding on to me. As I go into death, someone has promised, I will never, ever let you go. You see, look at what, look at what frames this prayer. Look at verse, look up at verse 17 and look at verse 10. And look at what this teaches us. It teaches us that you and I, we are, we are in the hands of a God who saves us. We are surrounded, we are kept, we are safe in him. And our whole lives, our prayers, our lives are framed by this wonderful, sovereign, saving grace. And so we rejoice today. We thank you, Heavenly Father. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for this wonderful picture of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. We thank you that he has gone down into death. And we praise you even more that he has been raised to life. And we thank you that we are united to him. And we thank you that he has promised that he will never, ever let go of us. And so we worship him this morning. We thank you that salvation comes from the Lord. And we pray these things in his name and for his glory and honor. Amen. Well, we're going to close.